Okay, good morning, everybody, uh, or good evening, if you're joining us from the United States, as the case may be. Uh, welcome to another United States Studies Center webinar. I'm Professor Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney, uh, which stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today's topic is the fate of President Biden's legislative agenda in Congress. And uh, for aficionados of American politics, um, you will understand already, that is where the game is uh, in American politics right now. Um, here in Australia, of course, we're focused on our own politics, but back in the US, there are actually some very interesting parallels between the politics around climate change, for instance, uh, between the two countries, something we might get into uh, a little later on. Um, but, the, but the big strategic uh, lay of the land is the following. Democrats, at least for the time being, control all three uh, institutions in, a, in a American national government, uh, the White House, um, the Senate uh, on the tie-breaking vote um, of, of the vice president uh, for matters that only require, uh, don't require 60 votes, and we might get to that as well. And of course, a slim majority uh, in, in the House of Representatives. Yet less than a year since uh, uh, taking power, President Biden is facing the prospects of his own legislators, Democratic legislators, unable to support um, uh, some of the more ambitious elements of the, of the democratic program, the campaign that Biden campaigned on. Um, what happened the last time Democrats controlled Congress and the White House, and indeed were reminded of uh, the midterm loss uh, that uh, Democrats faced at uh, uh, President Obama's midterm uh, in, in, 20, uh, in 2010. And indeed those of us even longer memories can go back to 1994, Bill Clinton's midterm, where Newt Gingrich and the Contract for America uh, Republican campaign I took the House in, in, in 1994. Um, what are the lessons learned uh, from those previous episodes for shaping any prospect of success for Biden and his ambitious legislative agenda? And what is the pathway forward for any glimmer uh, of success for, for Biden and indeed those who uh, harbor ambitions that under uh, unified control of those three branches of national government, there may be some big uh, moves, uh, particularly say around climate change, around infrastructure, around addressing uh, persistent inequality in the United States. Let me introduce uh, the panel that's going to be uh, taking on those, those matters uh, over the next uh, uh, 56 minutes. Um, look, we're thrilled to be joined by uh, Professor Brian Marshall, who is chair of the Department of Political Science at Miami University. Uh, and before we came on, I uh, discovered that uh, uh, Brian once had to suffer through some uh, invited lectures of mine a long time ago in, in both our careers. Uh, but, but since then, uh, Brian has gone on to become one of America's leading scholars of, of, uh, of the US Congress. His articles have appeared across the leading journals of, of political science. And indeed, his scholarship has intersected with uh, grit under the fingernails, fieldwork, or the, the US politics version of fieldwork, and that is, of course, time up on the hill, uh, working in and around uh, congressional offices, in particular, work in the office of Jim Clyburn. And, but critically, what brings Brian to us today is the fact he is co-author with our own Bruce Wolpe of a, of a book called The Committee, 
uh, now headed for a, uh, a, a, its second edition, uh, a study uh, of President Obama's legislative agenda and, and, and getting that through Congress or not, as the case may be, uh, in that earlier time period that I was referring to earlier. Uh, the committee first appeared in 2018 and published by the University of Michigan Press. And again, a little inside baseball, it's an extremely prestigious um, outlet for works of scholarship and political science. The University of Michigan's political science line is, is, is a place you want to be publishing your work. And, and, and for, for one of our scholars, Bruce, uh, uh, to be co-authoring with Professor Marshall, uh, producing scholarship of that caliber, absolutely uh, a thrill and, and a great privilege uh, that we get to call uh, Bruce one of our own. So Bruce, of course, I've already sort of introduced him, a non senior non-resident fellow here at the center. I often joke he's the hardest working commentator on US politics in Australia. Um, but but more, more importantly, he brings deep substantive knowledge based on his own time in the Hill and critically supplying really helpful context. Bruce worked in Australian politics, serving as uh, chief of staff uh, to uh, Prime Minister Gillard uh, at, at one point. Um, he also had a, a long career working in media organisations in Australia. So he's seen the system uh, from both countries, from the inside and from the outside. And that's part of what makes Bruce uh, so valuable uh, as part of uh, the lineup of experts and scholars here at the US Study Center. Uh, to moderate the conversation today, again, this is such a joy. Uh, uh, we've got um, Sarah Story, um, who up until very recently um, was, uh, I'll give you the title, Minister Counselor, parenthesis congressional at the Australian Embassy in Washington, DC. So Sarah, uh, a long-standing um, uh, uh, Australian public servant working in Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, a career of postings um, uh, around the world. Uh, but uh, most recently, she's just finished, she's back in Australia after literally just weeks ago, finishing up in an astonishing term as, as tip of the spear, as it were, for representing Australian national interests uh, up on Capitol Hill. And there's a lot more I could say there about how Australia does a really outsized job at, at, at um, attending to um, uh, Capitol Hill uh, in a way that not every mission in, in Washington does, but Australia scores very highly on that. And it's in no small measure because of the caliber of the people that are being appointed that role, Sarah included. And indeed, I, I do have to say, Sarah um, has been just an outstanding asset, a great friend of the US Study Center and, and of myself personally. When we're in Washington, uh, Sarah has sort of opened up her networks to us uh, I hope on occasion we've been able to reciprocate and, and perhaps assist Sarah from time to time, but it's been a fabulous partnership while Sarah was in the post in Washington, uh, and, but we're delighted to have Sarah, who's back in Canberra before she takes on her next role uh, with DFAT, but before she does, we're going to take advantage of that deep knowledge she acquired of the way Capitol Hill works to lead the conversation with Bruce and, and with Brian today. And uh, a five-minute introduction went for eight. My apologies. Uh, there's a lot to get through there. Uh, and uh, I, hope, I hope lay the table for what will be a fantastic conversation to be led by Sarah. Over to you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Simon. Um, thank you for the very warm welcome. And could I also just reciprocate thank you to the US Studies Centre. Um, the centre does an outstanding job, um, a much needed job in um, providing balanced and detailed and comprehensive and insightful commentary and analysis 
of US politics and the vital importance, the imperative, in fact, of our bilateral relationship. And that's in no small part to, to your leadership, Simon. You've been outstanding. Um, but it's my absolute pleasure to be here today uh, with such esteemed co-authors of this magnificent book. Um, I always get uh, particularly excited about books that weigh into Congress. Um, it is, uh, it's a real, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, it is to be commended and I congratulate very much the two co-authors with us today. Um, it provides a, an astonishingly genuine and authentic insight into the workings of Congress and what lessons can be drawn from these workings to our analysis and understanding of the US political enterprise and how they uh, impact on our own interests, because that's why we're all here. Um, uh, Bruce and Brian, um, just so pleased to, to have had the opportunity to be, um, to moderate this discussion with you. Um, I always see Congress uh, number one. My number one um, line is always never forget that Congress is a co-equal branch of the US government. Uh, and the, simply, um, I think that because uh, the way the very large differences in our systems, people are um, taken in by the similarities, but do not understand the differences. And I think this book really uh, brings to bear just some um, insight into um the complexities of congressional operations and the absolute imperative of understanding how the committee system works. So on that, um, I would like to ask you, co-authors, how did you come to, um, to, to write this book and uh, how did you find each other? So over to you, Bruce, first of all. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Simon, thank you. Sarah, thanks so much. Welcome back at home, which is wonderful. And uh, Brian, welcome to Australia. We hope you get here too, <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> um, th this book started when in 2008, right after the election, I had worked on Capitol Hill uh, in the 80s uh, with Henry Waxman, who had become by then chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, responsible for a major portion of President Obama's legislation. So Obama was elected, and I just thought it was a political calling of our time, and I wanted to go back and be a part of it. And I uh, joined, uh, rejoined Henry Waxman's staff, uh, senior advisor on the committee. And again, the committee was where uh, uh, healthcare, uh, consumer protection laws, cap and trade, climate change uh, went through. And um, so I wanted, I recognized it was an historic time. I want to write about it. So every night I kept a diary, a journal uh, as to what happened. And at the end of three years, it was 250,000 words of uh, what occurred uh, on Capitol Hill in, those in that time. And so I wanted to publish it, of course. And, uh, and I talked to a couple of publishers and it just didn't gel, but there was a really great uh, fellow who said, I have a key to doing this. And that is, I have a great political scientist named Professor Brian Marshall out in Ohio. And if we wrapped this journal into a political science context, it could go. So Brian, over to you as to how it all happened from there. Yeah, well, from there, uh, I was able to, uh, Bruce shared the, the copy of uh, his, his journal with me, and I looked at it, and I was just mesmerized. I mean, I, I couldn't stop reading it. There were some great policy uh, issues that, that he had developed in there, and I was, just, I was just taken aback with the detail and the foresight of his writing and the way he 
he unpackaged the issues and those kinds of things and really caught the heart of congressional politics in so many ways uh, with, with his journal. And so I saw right away the potential uh, that, that Bruce had put together. And, you know, that's, that's really how it came together. And, and we, we kind of put together this, you know, Capitol Hill war stories, <laughs> uh, kind of a, a book uh, that I think, you know, speaks to folks that just enjoy politics, enjoy um, policymaking in Congress, but also uh, speaks to another audience. And that's the, the audience that I tried to bring, uh, bring together in uh, the, the, the uh, congressional politics folks and, and the literature on congressional politics. So, so he had a really good first edition and it was uh, well-received, uh, critically acclaimed by some really good political scientists that we like and who like us. And then we started watching the planets align in last year in the 2020 election. And we started talking again in September. Oh, one thing, Brian and I didn't meet until after the, when the, after the book was published. We met in Washington. So we did all the work together uh, virtually and it was a, just a terrific collaboration. There was no, we worked real fast really well together, it was nice. In any event, so we saw the plans begin to align and we, Biden winning the presidential election at the, the House, the surprise of the election to, to us was uh, that, that, that the House Democratic majority was narrowed so much to now it's only three votes. And then the Senate finally clinching Democratic control in January in the runoffs in Georgia. So suddenly you had the White House, the House and the Senate back in alignment again and, and Joe Biden, who was vice president under Obama, now the president. And, and we realized that if, if Biden uh, took the lessons from those from the Obama years and applied them, he could, it was the only way that he could be successful. And there, so we had the alignment, and then we had also the same issues. Uh, Biden's first thing was economic recovery. That was Obama's first thing in the great uh, financial crisis. Healthcare was huge under Obama. Healthcare is huge under Biden, expanding uh, Medicare, um, global warming, front and center as we speak, and the uh, going up to Glasgow. So the issues were the same. And then politically, the realization among Democrats, if we don't hang together and get this done, we will fail. So ultimately, enough Democrats with bigger margins in the House and the Senate came together to pass it. Now that they have the same imperative right now, even though the margins are much, much smaller. Um, and we also have, and this is why we want to come back to Brian, well, guess what? Nancy Pelosi was speaker 12 years ago, and she's speaker now. And Mitch McConnell was the Republican leader 12 years ago, and he's the leader now. So, and Brian's much more of the Senate expert than I am and where the institutions are. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. So, I, I mean, it's certainly the case that the parties are, are, are different. And I mean, the, the, the difference has been over a, a longer period of time, of course. But, um, you know, over the last 40 years, I, I talked to my students about this. Over the last 40 years, if you look uh, at the Senate, the Senate changed hands eight times. And for half of that time, Democrats controlled, half of that time, uh, Republicans controlled. A similar story with the House of Representatives over that period of time. Uh, majority control changed hands four times. But again, Democrats controlled and Republicans controlled a half, about half the time. And, and if you look at presidential elections, uh, you see the same story unfold there with control over the White House. So over the last 40 years, the point here is over the last 40 years, party competition has become incredibly intense. And so virtually everything that members of Congress do on the Hill 
in one way or another can shape the outlook of their collective party interest in the upcoming election because the elections are so close. So, you know, members of Congress are always seeking ways to, to differentiate themselves. You know, how does how do Republicans differentiate themselves from from the de from the Democrats? And so there's just a, a constant campaigning. There's uh, increase in polarization on policy issues. Uh, the Democrats have a completely different agenda than than the Republicans. So so highlighting those differences uh, in terms of policy but also uh, doing things for the party and making the other party when they can look like they can't govern or, or what have you to give voters a reason to vote for, the, uh, for their party. Just one further point for me. The other lesson in this whole context that Biden learned was he had to go much bigger, much faster, much more scope now than he did than Obama and Biden did 12 years ago. Take Obamacare, it took until March next year to get that through. Cap and trade never got through. And so that, that was the, and so what did get through was um, early an economic recovery program. He wanted Republican support, just like Biden was looking for Republican support. The Republicans whittled it down under a trillion dollars. It was a good program. It ultimately worked, but it was too small and too slow. So there was no payoff going into the midterm elections in 2010. And so Biden, that's where the American Rescue Plan came from. Go for $2 trillion, get it done with the COVID vaccines and so forth, so that, and hopefully infrastructure, hopefully this thing under discussion now, so the benefits will be realized this year to, to go into the midterm election. So Biden absolutely internalized that lesson. So Sarah, that's how we all kind of came together here. That's terrific. Um, it, I mean, that's so rich already, what you've already covered. It's it's just wonderful. Um, it's making me miss DC uh, tremendously. So thanks, guys. Um, Bruce, while I've got you, so to speak, I'd be interested in hearing what you think Biden has learned. Uh, you know, why, um, what have you learned, what are you, have you taken from looking at this book and updating it, uh, particularly on, for instance, um, just the very careful committee work that created um, Obamacare and um, how you think that is, is that careful committee work being replicated now on some of those massive projects that we're seeing, massive undertakings, uh, um, you know, we're, we're talking about Biden's legislative agenda, as you say, and his, his ability to, to retain power going forward, not just into the midterms, but beyond. I'm interested in what Brian has to say on this too, but I don't think the committee process has been as thorough in this Congress as it was then, but a thorough process then took much longer. And so I think they've telescoped it. Uh, the other thing is there's just consensus among the Democrats as to what to do. So the bi a big issue is, is this a radical socialist agenda? And I think Biden has come to the, uh, to, to the recognition, particularly after COVID, which really changed our whole orientation to government and problems and what we want government to do, that healthcare, education, jobs, higher wages, uh, taking care of seniors, taking care of kids, free community college, that's not a radical agenda. And so I think they felt that they could hit, um, they could push mainstream, middle-class, working-class buttons and, uh, and proceed in that way. Brian, do you wanna add anything there? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that um, 
you know, looking at the committees, I think I think Bruce is 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 right. This Congress, there's been a there's been a faster pace, uh, and I think I think the leadership knows kind of where the I, I think they know where the obstacles are. It's just a matter of getting past those obstacles, and so getting people together, you know, to work to hammer out a deal before it goes public. I mean, I think that's that's really critical because they they've got to worry about the external electoral coalitions that are out there too. And, and the, the, the coalitions that they, they need to put together uh, to accept, to, to accept these kinds of policies. And so that's, that's a, a critical lesson, I think that um, from the Obama presidency, because they did that pretty well uh, uh, starting into the 111th Congress. Yeah, so I think that that's um, a very interesting point there, Brian. Um, one thing that uh, that just strikes me is the immensity of the ambition of the current legislative agenda. Um, and I'd just like to remind our viewers that um, the, the effectiveness of Congress at passing legislation is actually quite striking and it is diminishing. So um, as of the last Congress, the percentage of bills that were um, uh, that were introduced into Congress. Um, I nearly said tabled, but there's a very different meaning in the US as opposed to here uh, on the word tabled. Uh, only two between two and three percent of all bills introduced actually become law. So we've seen this this huge shift um, even since the Obama presidency. A greater emphasis on these massive uh, omnibus packages, but at the moment we have multiple of them moving through Congress and the committee process all at once with furious drafting um, underway, but we're also seeing massive horse trading as all elements of all of these bills are seemingly traded off against each other. And I'm wondering, uh, there's there's a lot of discussion out there about is Congress still effective, etc. And Brian, from a political science point of view, and then I'll ask uh, Bruce um, what you think of the politics of it all. From a political science point of view, how how do you see this, this shift in, in the change ac across to omnibus legislation as a policymaking tool? Well, you, you know, you're exactly right. It, is a, it has been an important shift uh, and, and we see it over time. The bills have gotten longer, uh, but there's, there's far fewer of them as you, as you point out. Um, but I, I, I think in terms of, you know, the, the agenda, whether, you, you know, especially if you look at the Senate and you look at um, uh, Mitch McConnell, especially how he has really been the, the gatekeeper uh, and, and the Senate Republicans have, have filibustered uh, much of Biden's agenda and the Democrats' agenda. So, you know, you look at uh, uh, policing reform, you know, immigration policy, LGBTQ uh, rights, voting, you know, you, the list is long. And so the Senate has become um, a, a policy graveyard, if you will, or a legislative graveyard. And so that's that's one very important kind of structural feature at play. Um, what, what, I, what I see is, um, I see all of that, but it, and it's in a context of just this hyper-partisanship that keeps getting worse and worse with a, a race to an endless bottom. And uh, you know when you have the Senate Republican leader McConnell saying my 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 mission is 100% opposition to anything that President Biden wants, when you can have the debt limit of the United States, which would mean if it's not enacted, uh, the U.S. would default for the first time in its history, and uh, McConnell says it's not my responsibility, it's your responsibility. You go ahead and do it. 
And then the Democrats say, well, just give us an up and down vote. Let's just forget the filibuster. Just give us an up and down vote. We'll pass it with 51. He says, no, 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 you have to vote cloture to vote on the debt limit. Well, what kind of rancid politics is this? But that's where it is. And so, and veteran Republicans, I saw something on Twitter earlier today, James Baker, former Secretary of State, just says, it's just awful and, and it's getting worse. And so we're kind of stuck, we're, we're kind of stuck in that. And, but what that means in a larger context for this country is, uh, Washington now has a Westminster culture. It's now the Westminster system. You're with the government, you're for the government. You're opposed to the government, you're in the opposition and the twain do not meet on the, you know, the, big, the big issues. But the problem is that the House and Senate are not constructed like the Australian Parliament. And so even if you have the numbers to pass something in the, in the, in the reps, you can't get it through the Senate. And so you can't govern. So the place is paralyzed and it gets even worse as far as the atmosphere is concerned. So, so, so and this has just been growing for years and I don't see an end to it right now. That's right. And you mentioned that uh, the Senate is widely perceived as being the graveyard of much legislation. Yet, in fact, also in this term of the 117th Congress, we've seen quite a few effective and very comprehensive bills um, originate and be adopted um, and actually have that, uh, that bipartisan basis to them. Um, you, we saw the first infrastructure package and we've also seen um, USICA, uh, a terrible acronym, uh, but the one that is building the US competitiveness and it is uh, commonly referred to as the China Bill. So both of the, those were very important and um, productive, if difficult, negotiations um, in the committees and through the Senate, and yet they're languishing in the House right now. Um, and I just wondered what you thought about that. I mean, that's that's quite a lot of focus is on the filibuster, but I think that the sheer immensity of the legislative agenda and the complexity of it all at once hitting, colliding in the House with um, the Speaker having only a handful of votes. I mean, Brian worked for um, who for uh, Congressman Clyburn, who we all know is a powerhouse in terms of managing the numbers and balancing all of this. But it is really, uh, I think, demonstrating right now um, just how complex this uh, the, the task is. Um, when the Prime Minister came a few weeks ago, when we were seeking calls, everyone's like, oh, there's no way you're going to get them. This is the hardest week in all of the Congress, perhaps <laughs> for the next four years. And guess what? We're still in that week. Uh, it feels like infrastructure week, which everyone jokes in Washington. It's infrastructure month. No, it's infrastructure year. It's back to the future. But what about um, how things are getting caught up in the House now too? What would you like to say about that? So, so, Sarah, if I could just follow up, and I think that's a great that's a great transition from your earlier question about you know Congress's success passing passing legislation. But uh, John Yarmouth, uh, the uh, retiring uh, Democratic uh, House House Budget Chair, uh, said said recently that uh, with with a, a vote margin of four Democratic votes in the House, we're all Joe Manchin now. And so, you know, that's that's very different than it was, you know, uh, back in the 111th Congress when when I when we had, you know, 50 some blue dogs to work with, you know, and, and you know, some of the, those blue dogs could go take a walk. Well, now they can't go take a walk. We, we need every one of those. And so, you know, thinking about how you get um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
uh, and the liberal wing to be able to, you know, she needs to be able to go out and sell these policies to the, you know, the Queens and, and, and in her district, you know, and at the same time, we got to have Joe Manchin be able to go out to Huntington, West Virginia and sell and sell this this piece of legislation. So, you know, the the progressives and the moderates, you know, they're going to have to find that common ground to win. But but I think in the end, I think Democrats, Democrats see they're all in the same boat with Biden. And I think that's going to be the 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 impetus that really pushes them on. Uh, Sarah, this raises a really question, a question I want to ask you. I mean, um, you're right in all you say, but I guess my question is, um, do you see, how do you see partisanship uh, on Capitol Hill from your vantage at the Australian embassy? Because it seems to me you encounter much smoother waters than anything that Brian and I worked on. <laughs> and, uh, and that it, it, A, it redounds to the country's benefit. But, and, and Australia, I think, is in a special place just given the nature of the relationship. But really, how do you see this hyper-partisan environment? And what do you have to do in your job as minister counselor to make sure that Australia was effective? Yeah, great question. Um, when we're looking at uh, both monitoring what is going on on the Hill, and that is absolutely um, critical in order to advocate for your interests, because you need to be able to understand uh, where the, the tension points are within the parties, where the power lies, um, which committees are important, and in order to progress things. So, um, Brian mentioned the Blue Dogs. The Blue Dogs uh, used to be incredibly influential. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of people overlook is that um, in the Democratic caucus, things have shifted remarkably to the left. And that is because of this hyper-partisanship that you speak about, Bruce. Um, the primary races have become, in many respects, the, the main game, not, the, not actually uh, general election day. Um, you mentioned Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she knocked off a very long-standing, very senior Democratic member of Congress um, in a primary race where he had been perhaps, and he's, he's acknowledged this, perhaps a little complacent about generating his base and um, engaging in what was a, is a very, very safe democratic seat. So the, the contest in that particular house district is all about the primary and not about the general election because the general election is a done deal in that district. So um, AOC was able to extraordinarily effectively harness her own support base and make uh, bring a national agenda to her district. Uh, so I think that in terms of what that means for the hyper-partisanship, it means that uh, there is much less incentive towards bipartisanship, and we're going to see that especially going into the midterms next year. Um, depending on how this legislative year wraps up, we go into 2022 with fewer legislative days because there always is in a midterm year, and we're seeing much less incentive for bipartisanship. Brian mentioned already uh, just the, the disincentive that exists in the Senate on, on the debt. Um, sorry, and no, that was you, um, Bruce, but it was, uh, it's really striking to see that there is this sense of, well, it's not, it's not going to help us get reelected. It's not going to help us hold this conference together, the Republican conference. So over to you guys. And, and we're seeing it right now, uh, picking up on what Brian said, the Democrats have a choice. They can engage in their partisan, their intra-party uh, ideological differences till the cows come home and not pass something and everything dies. Or they can, they can accept it 
and get the best that they can. You know, the great veteran legislators, lawmakers, as Brian knows as well, says, let me get what I can get now and I'll be back next year and the year after that and the year after that. You get something for dental care under Medicare today, well, you just expand it next, you know, and, and you build. So are they gonna give in to their longer term interests, which actually guarantee you're resonating with the country or the short term, you know, passions which means that it's going to be harder to get together. And this is playing out right now as we speak, and uh, we'll see how it's resolved over the next few days. Yeah, good point. Um, I think that another uh, issue there is uh, as the Democratic caucus has been pulled generally to the left, uh, that there is a huge impetus in let's just uh, pass as much as we can now, very aggressively, very ambitiously. Let's work with the double majority we have, um, the super majority, in fact, with having um, the White House as well. Uh, so I think that a lot of um, observers were anticipating that there would be a lot of legislation passed effectively in the first half of this 117th Congress, but that has in fact not come to pass. Um, and so, Brian, I wondered if you might um, comment on that. What are you seeing in terms of uh, the impact of hyperpartisanship on the ability to pass legislation, and particularly from the way the Democrats are approaching this um, in in the House, in particular. Well, I I think you know one of the things that 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 Biden has been been able to do, and 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 Bruce had mentioned this earlier, was go big and go early. So now he's he's in a position that you know um, he can he can. There's an old saying about about um about about thin majorities that 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 you know you can show your members the casket and then you can show them the grave <laughs> and so you know as, as i said before you know i think they 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 have to, they have to realize that um that their actions now in terms of legislating and and compromising with with each other so not you know holding constant the the republicans they they need to come together um, and 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 pass this, um, but but I will say to to Sarah to your earlier point about about the Democratic Party and some of the recent lessons that that moderates have learned. If you look at at the twelve or thirteen members uh, in the Democratic Party that that lost in in twenty twenty, uh, seven or eight of those Democrats were the most independent uh, Democrats. Uh, in the caucus, and so they they were moderates, but they they were very independent of the relatively independent of the leadership. I should be careful how I how I say that, but they lost, and so other moderates, the 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 Katie Porters, the 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 Congresswoman McBath from Georgia, those moderates, they they although they're moderates, they've been able to uh, side with um, with the leadership and be very loyal to the leadership. And they've they've been rewarded for that in terms of, uh, you know, campaign support and that kind of thing. And, and, and I think they'll march on to reelection. So so I think you're right. There there is there is that very important tension. There's always been a tension in the Democratic Party. But I think you're right. It's it's shifted now uh, a bit. But but I, I still think that both the progressives and the diminished moderates that we we have left in the Democratic Party are still very fundamentally important uh, to making this this go forward. They are uh, two quick points. Um, in uh, in Obama's first term, 
we could lose 39 votes on the House floor and still pass Obamacare. And so that's that was the difference. We, cap and trade, uh, I was responsible for getting Republicans. I got five Republicans to vote for cap and trade, which was sort of shocking, but, but it, that was part of the margin of victory. But this, this partisanship filters down, it's not just under the dome, it filters out to the country. Doug Sosnick, political scientist, pollster, did some study. 419 of the 435 seats have members who've, uh, whose districts voted with the, their presidential candidate. So in other words, there aren't uh, seats in the House where uh, they voted for Trump, but a Democrat holds it. And, uh, and, 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 the, uh, and the reverse as far as Biden is concerned. So it just shows how, Riven the country is with these partisan divides uh, between them right now. That the whole atmosphere is just infested with it. Yeah, great points there, Bruce. Um, what do you think this means for the midterms next year? Um, the ability or not of this legislative agenda to get through in the coming weeks? Well, I, um, if they can't pass this legislation that's pending right now soon, they're dead dead. Um, and even if they do pass it, as far as the House is concerned, I, the prospects of the Democrats holding the House, I find slim, very slim. Uh, the average loss of, of seats by the president's party in the first midterm election is, is 24 to 26. The Democrats hold the House by three seats. Plus there is this year the redistricting, the redistribution in Australian terms of uh, seats uh, in the states and uh, the way, and the way Republican legislatures are working, Democratic legislatures are working, that should net out on its own, what, Brian, five or six seats at least to the Republicans? Yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of that is still, uh, still a bit uncertain. But yeah, the, the suggestion is it's, it's, it's a gain for Republicans. Yes. Yeah. And so, so I think the chances of the Democrats holding the House are really quite slim. I think the Senate, we can talk about that a little bit, but I think the, the Democrats could gain one or two seats in the Senate, just given who's up and the politics in those states. So what that really means is the Democrats have any chance of anything good is to, let's just think about it, pass the program. Biden still is president after the midterms. Even if Congress goes completely Republican, he'll veto any repeal of, of what was passed in this Congress. And then you take that fight to the 2024 election. So you got to think ahead. You know, what did Bill Clinton say? Let's stop. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Right. <laughs> well, tomorrow is here. <laughs> so Bill's revenge. Uh, so they have to they have to do this now or else they come to the electorate with nothing, which would be a horrific d disappointment after Trump. Yeah, um, absolutely spot on. And I think one thing that's uh, very interesting and perhaps drawing it back to, to the fabulous book is um, one of the lessons that I think Biden has very much taken on board is uh, a reflection on perhaps they could have done better under the Obama administration of selling some of the, the um, important uh, programs that were intended to redress the global financial crisis, but also Obamacare. So we've seen a lot more um, outreach, um, but unfortunately, because of the partisanship and the, uh, the increased factionalism on display within the Democratic Party, we're also seeing interesting outreach from within the Democratic Party against its own members. You've got uh, Bernie Sanders going to, uh, to have discussions in West Virginia to try to get under the nose of um, and up the nose of Senator Manchin, who some people refer to as the president of the Senate, because with his swing 
swing vote uh, and his ability to hold things up also along alongside uh, Kristen Cinema from Arizona. Um, there is a lot of focus on those states, but perhaps not recognizing the very genuine um, tensions within those states and the, the, um, the interests of the moderates. I think there are a lot of people, our contacts would tell us this all the time, there are a lot of moderate senators who actually believe the same um, have similar concerns about the ambition of the level of spending out there and the ability of that ambition to uh, to be um, taken uh, to be disproportionate to the level of ambition to mean that uh, the the levels of spending are so great that they will ultimately impact negatively on the Democrats' uh, re-election prospects, particularly in the House. Uh, but also in the Senate, even though I think Bruce has said very accurately, there are a number of um, factors there that actually mean, even though it's a 50-50 Senate right now, uh, the map and the fact that we have a lot of retirements on the books. And Brian, I'd like to ask you on that note about Ohio. It's shaping up to be a, a fascinating Senate race there. It, it certainly is. Uh, there's, there's a number, uh, and I mentioned this early on uh, before we opened up, uh, already advertising going on quite extensively uh, in Ohio, especially around the, the Republican primary. So you have um, a number of um, uh, Senate, Senate Republican uh, candidates competing for the primary. And so it's, it's, just, it's just fascinating to watch. And, and honestly, they're, I think, vying for, you know, who can be the most like uh, former President Trump. Uh, I, I mean, there, there, there was a, or there still is a Portman-like Republican candidate, but uh, he's not getting much press. Uh, the other ones are, though. So that's it's really an interesting dynamic, and 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 so we'll have to watch and see. On the other side, we've got Tim Ryan. I think is probably uh, uh, the House member Tim Ryan run for the 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 Portman seat on the Democratic side here in Ohio, and. Uh, He's got a little bit of Sherrod Brown in him, uh, and I think I think he he can he'll be able to make a go of this race, especially if the those uh, Republican candidates kind of tear each other up enough uh, going into next year. Uh, that's an interesting segue um, in terms of uh, again going back to the book. Um, you mentioned that. Uh, under the Trump administration, there was a little bit of a, an attempt to subvert um, congressional processes and to concentrate power in the hands of the executive. Um, some commentators have even potentially suggested that, um, in fact, many members themselves uh, have been expressed significant concerns about the, the threat to US democracy. And I wondered if I could um, seek both of your impressions on that, uh, particularly as, as um, was, we saw play out very dramatically for the 6th of January insurrection. Um, I, I think uh, President Biden has made a, a cornerstone of his presidency to show that American democracy is working and so uh, he wants to do it as far as the expression of foreign policy, but also as to what he can accomplish domestically that the institutions work. And um, January 6th is uh, now an historic day and will be remembered for a long time. And the lessons are uh, America doesn't have a choice but for its democratic institutions to work. And what was so telling on the day to me, uh, aside from the monstrosity of what occurred, was that the leadership, both sides and the vice president were determined to come back that day and discharge their constitutional responsibility. So even under the most extreme conditions, 
that uh, they were determined to uh, uphold their oath of office and make sure that the uh, that the Constitution worked and the and the congressional process of certifying the election worked. And I just don't I just can't see that that will be abandoned even under immense pressure over the you know President Trump is where he is and he says what he says. But I still think that uh, the leaders know better. Mitch McConnell certainly knows better. Vice President Pence knows better and that they will stay true. Brian, what do you think? Well, the pendulum certainly swang, swung very, very far uh, from, from, from its post on January 6th. That's, that's for certain. And I think, uh, I, I, I think voters will remember that. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the turnout that we've seen in, in recent elections I, I, I'm hopeful that that voters will say, you know, how important it is and, and, and realize how important their their vote is. And I hope we see continued high levels of turnouts um, uh, uh, of voters. And so I think I think that in a, in it of itself is the main protection of our democracy is that that, you know, citizens, they they play the most important role. And, and I hope that they they see that and, and continue to to vote at very high levels. You know, if the United States adopted the Australian system, this problem would go away. <laughs> There's been lots of talk about that. <laughs> yeah, but I think that uh, the response to January 6th certainly underlined the, um, the importance and the constitutional protections and inbuilt checks and balances within the system in order to protect democracy. And that's something that I think uh, should should be noted um, that the the institutions prevailed. Um, democracy can be messy, as we're seeing at the moment with this legislative process. But it uh, there's also a, as a very strong determination, I think, across the aisle to maintain the integrity of the institution. And um, Simon, perhaps I could turn to you. Um, I know that you were going to moderate some or go to some questions from the audience and um, I, I will leave it in your capable hands. Thank you. Thank, thanks so much. It's been a fabulous conversation uh, thus far. Um, Sarah, look, um, we're going to flip you out of moderator role briefly and, and perhaps uh, ask you a few questions uh, drawing on you know, your time as Minister Councillor uh, uh, heading up uh, Australia's Congressional Liaison. Um, you know, um, I, I should have mentioned in the intro, but literally towards the, literally in your last two weeks on the job, I think it coincided with um, two ministers, the Prime Minister and the AUKUS announcement. Um, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about um, um, the significance of that, of, of the FaceTime the Prime Minister got up on, on Capitol Hill, but perhaps just if you could pull the curtain a little bit back on, AUKUS is, as I understand it, not quite a done deal. There's this 18 month consultation period, but the US Congress has, there are some moves yet to be made there, perhaps around the tech transfer issues that I know you might have some some visibility on that you I think it'd be in, in, incredible if you could perhaps share some of that to the extent you can with our audience today. Of course, thank you, Simon. Um, 
I'll just be brief, but I would say that uh, there's a longstanding and um, respect from the, the government of Australia, but also successive governments of the importance of engaging Congress. Um, we've had multiple of our prime ministers come to address joint um, sessions of Congress. And so there's always, always an element on the Hill um, for any high level visitor. Certainly, as you said, uh, the, my last few weeks, um, it all came thick and fast. Uh, and the engagements that uh, Foreign Minister Payne, Defence Minister Dutton, and then following them, the Prime Minister had, uh, were beautifully laying the groundwork. Um, the uh, the Defence and Foreign Minister were in fact on the Hill as um, the AUKUS announcement was made. And uh, it was an extraordinary um, outpouring of support for the Alliance from Congress. And when the Prime Minister came just at, shortly afterwards, we were able to secure seven separate, substantive, extraordinary high-level meetings. Uh, so the leadership of Congress across the aisle, um, they recognise the importance of, of this announcement from the executive, and they swung in to support um, and acknowledgement, and they were very pleased to hear the Prime Minister say that he understood that AUKUS was, uh, a, it is indeed a, a ground-changing, um, absolutely tectonic shift in terms of bolstering our alliance, um, but it needs the support of Congress it needs to be um, nutted out in Congress. Appropriations need to be made towards its program uh, mm. programs. Um, the non-proliferation aspects and the very serious stewardship of nuclear technology need to be authorised and agreed to by the relevant parts of Congress. Uh, we need uh, elements will end up being rolled into the National Defence Authorisation Agreement into pretty much any committee's work. And so um, I recall on the day after the AUKUS announcement meeting with my team uh, saying welcome to your next 18 months because you certainly have a very set uh, direction now of what needs to be done and um, the interests that need to be engaged and while we don't know now the exact shape and feel of it um, I think a good good precedent is the negotiation uh, and the passage of the Australia-US free trade agreement in 2005 that took uh, a couple of years of, of stakeholder engagement and uh, to enable ultimate passage. Thanks. Oh, fa fascinating. Um, I, I don't think enough Australians appreciate that there are a few regulatory, legislative uh, things that are enshrined in US law and, and hence all the process that accompanies that where Australian interests are going to be represented, make sure that AUKUS stays on track through all those bits of the plumbing that are part of perhaps the annual calendar. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, as you said, I think uh, uh, keep, keeping, keeping all that moving, um, a, a very full work program for your former team uh, there, there in, in, in DC. Um, hey, uh, and I wanna come back to Brian and, and Bruce. Um, there was a really, um, it, it went quite quickly during the conversation, but Sarah pointed out, Bruce and Brian, that um, the Senate has passed uh, some big deal legislation, some of which has real consequences for Australian national interests. But I, I think, I, think um, I wrote it down at the time, Sarah's phrase, a languishing in the House yeah. um, at this point. And, and um, I'm wondering, do you have a sense of that? Uh, is it that the, 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 the left 
isn't so in a big hurry to get to things like defense, security, strategic competition with China, those sorts of issues just aren't uh, lighting things up. On the other hand, you'd think they'd be easy wins or they're perhaps being held hostage perhaps in some internal party game to progress on the on the things that might be a bit more near and dearer to different parts of the Democratic caucus. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I think it could be more institutional than anything else. Let's take the big infrastructure bill that's pending. That was written in the Senate. And so the House is just going to have to take that. They won't have a chance to amend it. Uh, reconciliation, ultimately, you know, the Senate is going to, it's mansion and cinema, right? Principally. And so they're going to have to take that. So here they have this big mega bill on China and they're just going to have to take it. Now, I think what will break, so I don't think it's, I think it's less ideological, more institutional, but I think we'll have a good sense of the direction of it after the Biden-Xi summit, because that will set the framework as to what is doable and what the policies, the engagement between the two countries will be and then what that requires. So I think this is absolutely salvageable, will require some nimble work. And uh, uh, Sarah, if you were still there, I'd say, get to it, but uh, your successor will, <laughs> and, uh, and Arthur. Uh, but um, I, I do think that there's every prospect for this. It, it, when the president and the secretary of state and the defense secretary and the national security advisor, this is a high priority. We need this to be successful in our China agenda and people are behind it after the summit. I think that'll break the ice. Brian, anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I, I think this is more of an institutional, uh, an institutional explanation too, I think right now. Uh, the speaker's got so many balls in the air uh, for the White House, and they 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 want to they they want to make sure they take care of that. And and I don't see any any drawn out, uh, you know, uh, I don't see this languishing for for very long. Yeah. Um, let me. We've got a little bit of time. I'll ask a real fast one, um, Bruce. Throughout the the conversation, you've been coming back to how hyperpartisanship is the problem, it, it's the problem, it's this cancer that's a, um, but if it really were a Westminster system. It would be normal, it would be normal. Manchin, no, Manchin would be on board. Oh, yeah, right? that's right. They, they'd be getting it done, right? Well, if it really were a, a Westminster system, if right. party discipline were as strong as it is, even at 0.9 of the strength of it in the Australian system, we wouldn't be having this conversation, it'd be done. Remember Brian Harradine? So, I mean, I think this is where, you know, Joel Fitzgibbon, uh, you know, is, is the Joe Manchin of, of Australia. So I think that's where, but in general, it would require Manchin to cross the floor in order to be a problem. And so, no, the problem doesn't exist here uh, like, like that. So, I'm, uh, but he is, these are all free agents and, um, and it is really, and it, it, there's no margin. That's why the Senate after the midterms could be have 52 Democrats. Well, then Joe Manchin doesn't really matter that much. And, and uh, but that's too late if you lose the house. Roger that. Yeah. Brian, any, any thoughts about um, um, we are yet to see true partisanship and only if we did, it'd actually be a, a perhaps it had unjam um, some of these things right now. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, kind of going back to, to a point Sarah had, had raised early on. I mean, you know, it's certainly the case our system has a lot of veto points for, for the minority party. Uh, but still, uh, when you look at the losses, the, the policy losses to the majority party over, the, over time, a majority of those losses are intra-party losses. So not being unable to get 
um, enough or a sufficiently a sufficient number of the majority party together uh, to pass things. And so that's, you know, like you say, I guess that's still a, a difference that we have. Um, part of that is, is, you know, the, the electoral, I, I think the electoral situation, I mean, there's, there's a lot of variation, uh, in the parties across the country. I mean, I mean, yeah. the Sun Belt, the Sun Belt state Democrats, you know, they're going after a different uh, group of Democrats than the Rust Belt. Because so. one other thing, we're not giving it justice, it really requires five minutes or more, but the filibuster, and that, that will be tested before the end of the year, because Democrats have to have voting rights to go to the electorate with, and the filibuster is what's stopping it. So that moment of truth and justice is still ahead of us. Real quickly on that one, Brian and Bruce, um, can you unpick the filibuster for a specific piece of legislation without without cratering the whole thing, which may rebound back on a future Democratic <laughs> to lose that power when if they're the minority again at some point in the future? Real, real quick response to that, Brian. I, I would I would say you know that's that's Pandora's box. I mean, they did that with with uh, a judicial. Um, uh, judicial nominations, and we saw kind of what happened from 2013 on uh, with that. But I, I, you know, I think there's there's a lot of good uh, good points being made about the importance of voting rights. It's that's fundamental to democracy. And so, uh, if if you're going to reform the filibuster in a very narrow way for voting rights, then you know I think I think the American people understand that. But we, we ultimately take it back to them. Yeah. Hey, uh, we're, we're fast running out of time. I, I want to ask Sarah, good diplomat that you are, um, I don't want to put you on the spot about um, about which party in control and how that might play for Australian national interests and whatnot. But some of the things that Australia is that are that do speak to Australian national interests, um, looking ahead to a likely, as Bruce foreshadowed, I think quite re realistically, a likely change in control of the House, at least. Um, putting a finger to the wind, do you do you see that making, say, for these these the you know strategic competition with China, defence spending, um, probably um, any appetite for multilateralism or um, a trade liberalisation? I, I I don't know how that plays. The, frankly, on depending on which side of politics controls the house, but um, but but just wondering, you know, getting business done up there on, you know, is the set of issues that you're often progressing often happily, as, as I think Bruce kind of pointed out at one point, sitting off and above, it, it, it's, it's, it's been the nature of things in the last five years or so in particular, that on a lot of things that Australia cares about, it, 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 it's, there have been coalitions able to come together a, a, across the aisle. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not at all, um, you're not putting me in a difficult spot because honestly, the the work of the embassy is to understand where the our interests align with the stakeholders. So for instance, in the House with Republicans, uh, there's uh, there's often a pretty easy conversation we can have about defence spending, um, about strategic competition. Um, that conversation is, is able to occur, of course, with Democrats, but it depends on which uh, variety of Democrat you're speaking to, as Brian's mentioned. So the conversation is just framed differently. There are no choke points or no major obstacles because I think that 
such as the strength of the bilateral relationship and the commonality of interests. It's literally just about um, presenting those in uh, a language that is identifiable and aligned with whatever member's interest it is. There is that is not a manufacturing. It is simply just a fact. Um, you know, if you've got a, someone who has a defence district in their uh, big base in their district, they're going to be very focused on that, regardless of what party they're in. Um, if you've got a, um, a member who's actually more focused on some of the social justice issues, then there's easily conversations that can be had about that, about shared interests as well. So um, I hope that answers the, your question. No, no, got it. Thanks. Hey, and look, this will have to be the last uh, question. Um, and a lot came in in real time. Um, we, we've covered a lot of it, just uh, saying to the audience today, uh, if I haven't mentioned you by name with your question, I hope that the conversation has covered off some of the many topics I'm just looking at have, have come in in real time. But for, uh, a question from uh, that came in from Michael uh, Schettler from, um, if I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Schottler from, um, ask, look, is there any chance that you leapfrog mansion is a is a Romney, or is there oh, is there yeah. that last Republican vote there, uh, Mikowski? Is there is there um, is there the chance that there's a vote there to be had yeah. that 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 offsets? Uh, a re really, I know you talked about hyperpartisanship before, Bruce, but to both of you, uh, you gentlemen, yeah. before we close, I know Michael Shetler. Michael, thanks so much for the question, and uh, the the answer is no. I've, I've checked it out with people, and other people have checked. Arlen Specter, a Republican of Pennsylvania, flipped, became an independent, provided a crucial vote to Obama. So is there a, would, would Senator Portman in Ohio, because he's the most, he's a logical one. Brian, any chance for him? I, you know, I, I have not heard any rumblings about that. I, I don't think so, although I'm sure the White House would be thrilled because then <laughs> you could, they could say it's bipartisan if they could get, if they could get one. The Rob Portman Bridge and Dam is I was going to say in Ohio. All, all you have to do is underbid Mansion by a dollar, and uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah. But uh, it just speaks to the you know uh, the earlier observation about the, the the number of veto points in the American system. I think is a, is a is a very nice professorial way of describing it, Brian. Uh, and and it's, it's a point that can't be stressed enough. I think to an Australian audience that often looks at dismay. At, at why things take so long to get to get done um, in Washington, but understanding why and how, I, I think is really important. And I've also got the, the great expertise of Sarah, who's been trying to unpick that and navigate uh, the way through it on behalf of Australian national interests, and did so so well. At, at what a tumultuous time, Sarah, uh, to be there in 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 Washington, and and to leave on such a high note. Um, um, may, may your next career move be as, uh, as, as eventful and as stimulating and redound to uh, as Australian national interests as, as profoundly as this one. Um, so by, that'll be my way of saying thank you at 12.03. We've run a little over time, um, but an awful lot to get through, uh, particularly when I've got uh, just such great uh, panellists as we've had today. Brian, Bruce and Sarah, thank you so much. And, and thanks to everybody for joining us today. Janine, um, have we got something to talk about um, uh, coming up future webinars? And the answer is yes. <laughs> oh, um, you can always catch up 
with past events. These uh, uh, go live to YouTube and, of course, are stored on YouTube for future viewing. You can get caught up on some of our uh, past, past events there. And it's been a big couple of months for events here at the US Study Center. So I encourage you to do that. And of course, we're not done for the year. We're going to we're going to go out with a bang with a with a few more um, uh, big conversations uh, with US-based interlocutors. We hope and expect uh, before before the end of the calendar year here in Australia as we head into the summer here. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, see you on another webinar in the not too distant future. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.